So hi, everybody. I'm Paul Swearingen, the nonpartisan evangelical on the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast. Thank you for being with us today. And, and I get to have a great conversation today with uh, with sort of a new friend, a friend of, of my wife. Tyra Mariani is the president and COO of New America, which is a think tank slash action tank uh, in America, I guess. So Tyra, thanks for joining me. Uh, how are you today? I am great, and my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I'm delighted to to talk with you today. So our, our connection is my, my wife is on the New America board in full disclosure. Tell us a little bit about New America and what it does. Yeah. Well, as you mentioned in the lead up, New America is, I think, an action tank. We are celebrating our 20th year as an organization. We have for 20 years actually nurtured a new generation of policy experts and public intellectuals, but today we are more of a community of problem solvers, still doing the research, the reporting and analysis, but we've also long thought about the intersection of tech and policy. We think there's a role that tech can play in helping us to improve policy. Of course, it certainly comes with its challenges. And so we do do that work where we are about putting new and innovative ideas into the space of, of solving those public problems. But we also are experimenting locally uh, and generating and testing solutions to some of those problems, really believing that around the country, people are solving some of our most entrenched problems and that we have a role to learn from them and to work with them and and share so that others may, may benefit. So we're, we're working on things from education to the technology, thinking about the future of work as it relates to automation, the role of natural resources in our security as a country, and the list sort of goes on. And political reform, a hot topic you and I have talked about. Yeah. A lot, you know, what's what's broken about our system and how can we make it better and the, the what's easy and challenging about that, et cetera. So it's an interesting place. It's a place where our I love working because I get to learn as much as I can look up from the other work that I, <laughs> that I have to do. There's always something to learn. So it's a it's an intellectually enriching place, I must say. Wow. And it, it sounds like such important work. Um, you know, one of the things you said that intrigues me in there is, you know, for some people, their jobs are just going away and are not going to exist anymore. And, and I think some of what we're seeing politically is is that fear in people. And, and so I think, how, how do you come up with a solution? If you're a, if you're a buggy whip maker and the buggy goes away, uh, how do you, how do you find something else to do? You know? Well, no, so that's part of it. In fact, two things I want to lift up on that front. One is our work. In fact, we call it work workers and technology because it isn't just about the work. Let's focus on the worker and how technology is impacting that. And, we, you, there's so much in the press on the robots are taking our jobs and it is this fear-based mentality and we can have another conversation, perhaps we will in this one, on the role that fear plays and how it drives our, how it drives our behavior and good and I would argue mostly not so good ways. Um, but rather than be in a passive mode, it is to say, let's look at the data at the local level on what jobs we think will be most impacted. And it's more a percentage of the job that may be impacted as opposed to the whole job. And then for us to work with communities and say, what can you do? How can you get in front of this? Like, you don't have to just wait for it to happen. If you know it's going to impact the cashier or the back office worker, what training programs, how do we how do we help people position themselves so that they're competitive in a different market? And we have a board member, uh, Mona Morshed, who works, uh, who leads work called Generation, which is about retraining and training young folks for skilled jobs. And she said the hardest part is getting people that have been laid off to first it just accept that they now need to learn and think and do something different. It's not the training itself, right? It's just the, it's like the change management of accepting I can no longer be, mm-hmm. as you called it, a buggy driver, a cashier, or an accountant. I, I, actually, I need to go into a different field, and but maybe this is a thing I've been doing for 40 years. And so that's, that's the hard part um, of this process, but we, we have a role and helping diverse stakeholders get together and, again, be more proactive and thinking through 
what's possible and how they might respond before it actually happens. Hmm. That's interesting because I, I work with a lot of a lot of people around a lot of these issues of of being a victim. Once you once you start to become a victim of the circumstances around you, and 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 it's real. You know, you have to get a paycheck, and I'm not I'm real. not not saying that's not real. But if you if you look at it as this is happening to me, and I'm powerless to change it. You, it starts to impact a whole lot of things in your life. It does. And I spend, I, I see part of my role, I think anyone's role as leader is this sort of coaching and mentoring. And I have folks that I do on the side, but I have younger people that I coach at work. And, and part of what I think I, I am often telling them is to help them to understand their own um, efficacy in their, in the situation that your boss is doing X, you don't, there are ways that you can try to navigate that, that changes the situation. Don't just take it as a thing that's happening to you. And you're right. The, that victim, I had a conversation with a funder yesterday who did this, who talked about the same thing where in Arkansas, it's like, here's what's happening to me. Okay. Well, but what are we going to do about it? Right. And so there's a, I think there's a, this, line we have to walk where you do need to acknowledge what's happened to you, how you feel about it, but then there also is this sort of activation that needs to happen that you don't just stay there Mm -hmm. and be on the reactive side, but then it's like, okay, let me get up. (laughs) Let me go do this thing uh, that changes the circumstance. And I think where that's really pertinent to our discussion on a podcast called The Nonpartisan Evangelical, you're you're a a person of faith, and so am I. And I I think a lot of, I feel like a lot of what we're seeing today in in politics and in sort of this political divide in America is there is a, a, a victim mentality over a great deal of people in America, perhaps, and an elected official that could come along and say, yes, you are a victim and I'm the solution. And yeah. you you can blame those other people for your problems. It, it starts to become a really powerful tool, yeah. even manipulative tool, maybe, perhaps. Yes. And the and the sad reality is, it, is it doesn't change anything. There, that validation matters, right? We all look for and need some sort of validation and affirmation, but, but you can't stay there and you can't, you can't solely blame others. And there are, there's always the root cause to the, <laughs> to the root cause as part of that. And I think part of it, we started talking about it a little bit is what I think is somewhere between what I call a fear and a scarcity mindset, mm. which is if, if, if your perception and your experience has been scarcity and therefore you are fearful that you will run out and somehow someone creates in your mind that these other groups are taking it away, you behave very differently versus when you either think through an abundance mindset, which is there's plenty, therefore we can share, or that you can come together to say, you know what, we're both kind of screwed. <laughs> like we are literally fighting for crumbs. What can we do to come together instead of us fighting for the crumbs? How can we get more of the pie to the extent that the pie is fixed and of course resources are? So, yeah, I do think you're right that it's driving a lot of the behavior and the belief that when a leader comes forward and steps up and and validates that and somehow is a solution when we, I don't, I'm not sure there's at any point in history other than Jesus where we can say there was one person who was able to solve a lot of problems, right, for everybody. Yeah. Well, I think even Jesus kind of said, here's the tools, go go work it. Yes. But I think it, it, it's not, and to do that, we, we have to sort of move from a, a me and, you know, it's very American. I have my rights and, and the individual is everything. And, and I think there's something good about that because I do like to tell people you're empowered and go for right. it. But but you have to do that in, in sort of a we mentality. Right. And yeah. uh, and if, if we start to think as we and there's enough for everybody and let's let's start to figure out how we yeah how we share the crumbs. I really like that. Then then maybe we get get over some of the, the division that's caused by the fear that these immigrants are coming to take away from me as That's to use an example of, a, of an issue, I guess that it, it would seem immigration is sort of fear based in this thing, right? No, that's right. And there's an African principle uh, called Ubuntu. 
and it stands for I am because we are. And we are not, we have not been made to be independent beings. As much as we say we are, I am one who likes to espouse her independence. <laughs> the reality is at the end of the day, I need other people, uh, even for my own survival. And I think the more we can understand that. But but I think people do get that. But there's also this, this tribe mentality. And, you know, I've been reading lots of things, lots of conversation around how we are becoming more entrenched in our tribes and not connecting for the, the commonalities that we have. So that's that's certainly not helping. There's comfort in tribes, but there is isolation as well in tribes. And, and we definitely need the collective for the issues we're facing today. How does somebody see that in themselves? I, I'm really intrigued that, you know, there's sort of this complete agreement we're divided and and it seems like nobody believes i'm a part of the divide you know we're divided because those people how do you how does somebody see in themselves that they're a part of the division that we're all worried about right now that's a good question (laughs) (laughs) especially when it's i'm right and you're wrong you're wrong that's that's really hard i think that I think that comes through searching, it comes through the work that you're doing of building awareness of commonalities over differences. Uh, I I had a pastor who used to say, just because we're different, the difference does not mean deficient. And so I think it's understanding that piece. And again, we're we're struggling, you know, oh, actually your group is also struggling economically or your group you hurt the same way that I hurt. I think it's seeing that and recognizing to the extent that we are othering people that, that we, and so on some level participate, maybe there, there's probably some validity to that, but my guess is we all participate on some level. Hmm. Yeah. I, I guess I, I just try to tell people watch if, if you watch one news source, Go watch the other. You know, if yeah. if uh, you read one set of material or set of websites, go read something from the other side. And most of all, meet people who believe differently than you and ask them to tell you their story. I, I think hearing people's stories is the most powerful thing to break that down. Because if you can say, wow, they totally disagree with me politically, but yes. they seem like good human beings. Uh, right. You know, we can get through a whole lot of things together, I think, wouldn't you say? Right. That's right. And, yeah. and yes, I think that we often too will amplify the minority to feel like the majority. So I think the more you can collect the data points to your point of talking to people and hearing stories, the more you can understand where something is common or less common when we might think it's just the opposite. Yeah. And, and where my concern has really come into this and why I do what I do is, is how, how big an impact faith and religion is having on this that in some ways i think people feel that isolation and that purity of their thought is is good and what what god wants them to do to that that jesus commanded them to be tribal and the other side is evil and and if you have sort of that theological mix in there i don't know do you see that as a problem and and how do we address that it, no, it drive it. Oh gosh, it it is the thing that drives your, <laughs> you know, pick your issue. And um, I'm tempted. It's one of the one of the points that I actually underline in your book. Not to not to pub your book, but it. You're reading my book. I love it. I love I'm it. Reading your book, but it stood <laughs> out for me at this this point on an issue becomes and that issue usually connects to our faith and what we've been taught about how we should behave in life which we may or may or may not connect back to the bible Mm -hmm. Uh, and that becomes the the wedge issue instead of thinking to the point of for example the new testament if the root if it is about love and how we treat one another and how we care for one another Yes, there is a role a role for rules, but it's also there's still the core value that that should connect to our faith as part of it. But no, I agree with you that in, in many points it is a it is because we are in these different camps and believe different things on different issues that it becomes a divide and and when it's actually supposed to be more of a bridge, ironically, right? Yeah. 
space is intended to help us to connect and bridge with others, but often, at least mine is, <laughs> I can't speak for everyone else, yeah. mine is that way, but but in some ways it can be, it can cut it off because we're, because you don't believe what I believe. Yeah. I think if, I think if you look at the Ten Commandments, they, they were all about relationship, you know, they start with relationship with God and then relationship okay. with the interrelating with humanity. And then, of course, Jesus said, okay, there's not Ten Commandments anymore, there's two. And it's love God and love your neighbor. And then he defined neighbor as our enemy. And, and ultimately, your ability to love your enemy is proof of your love for God. And yes, so I think if we looked at that as the whole of what the Bible is trying to tell us is how the rules are about learning to interrelate with one another well. And so interrelating with one another well ultimately is the test of our love of God. I, for me, it just feels like, I, 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 and when I was pastoring a church, I would tell our people, if love for others and your theology run into each other, choose the love. And I, I don't think God's ever going to be mad at you about that. Yeah, that's right. I, uh, I once heard a sermon that was about the, it really brought it home for me, and I sometimes still connect to it, about the structure of the cross. And to your point of the two, said another way or another illustration of those two commandments where the vertical is up and down, right? It is about the relationship with God and the horizontal is about the relationship with people. So when I am tempted to, to cut off because <laughs> I get mad and people hurt me as well, right? When I am tempted to do that, I think about the horizontal and the relationship with others. And it, uh, it usually has at least some role in softening my heart and, uh, and keeping me connected but it's 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 the most difficult thing to do i say as a leader of an organization we have people in our organization therefore we are imperfect right we have we often want to go from church to church or organization or organization looking for the perfect but wherever you find people you will find imperfection therefore how do we work through it and and build better bridges and stay connected with each other but i but i think you're right about those two the two most important points, but boy, that second one is a lot. <laughs> it <laughs> is. <laughs> People are tough sometimes, for sure. Sometimes. I'm talking with Tyra Mariani. She's the president and COO of New America, a think tank and action tank. And tell me a little bit, of, if you would, about your your faith background and and uh, does that tie in with what you do in New America? It does. It certainly does. So I was actually born and raised Catholic. I grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana, where there's a heavy, heavy concentration of Catholics. I also went to a Catholic elementary school and a Catholic high school. Oh, wow. (laughs) I got it coming and going. (laughs) (laughs) Second communion, confirmation, I did the whole nine. And I... When I moved, let me think, I I moved to D.C., I was able to continue worshiping in the Catholic faith, and then I moved to Chicago, and I had become accustomed to what I call a Protestant style of worship. It it is no secret that the Catholic uh, faith uh, denomination can be quite reserved and quiet, and so I had gotten accustomed to this more joyous and open celebration, and so in looking for... A, a new church home, I ended up uh, be moving to United Church of Christ, UCC, because that 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 gave me that style of worship. And I thought, okay, well, they've got the basic tenets of like God and Jesus. And <laughs> I think my mother was a little bit nervous. Uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> what is she doing? But I wasn't becoming something that, that didn't center on Christianity. And, and that actually, I would say in a way that I did not fully understand in Catholicism is it was through my study within the United Church of Christ, uh, then led by Pastor Jeremiah Wright Jr., that I understood what I would call more of a justice frame, where I started to understand not just, you know, the, I didn't understand, I think I, growing up, I probably understood the parables more on an individual level how we treat our neighbor you know someone hits you like it was always this individual i think association and i didn't think about 
the systems and how the systems perpetuate injustice, how the systems perpetuate oppression. And so it was through that study that I think somewhere between, my, my mother used to re refer to when I would complain about the inequities between how she taught, how my parents taught my brother versus myself, as <laughs> she would say, to whom much is given, much is required. And I didn't realize it was scriptural at the moment, right? But that was, that was her out to get me to quiet down when I said, why does he get $5 for a B and I get $3 for a B, <laughs> right? And she would say the A comes easier to you. So, uh, so there you have it. So somewhere between she and I just, you know, I was still jokingly say that was just your out, you know, you scripture with that purpose. But that then I would say became this. Um, and I, I went into the private sector and I just decided that the more I came to understand, I think I lived a fairly shelter life, but the more I came to understand how the world works and education for me was so pivotal. It opened up so many doors for me, but I, I got lucky and I came to realize I was an exception because our public education system is so broken around the country. And so the more I sort of understand, understood the brokenness, if you will, of some of our systems and how they work for some people, but not everyone, but we said we are a country about you know, liberty and justice for all, then I, I wanted to do something about that. So I moved from the private sector working on social impact issues starting in public education. And you've already heard me talk about what New America does, but you can see how that that frame of um, equity and and fighting for the rights of all Americans is part of what we do. So it it very much is centered and, and drives how I lead and, and how I work, how I treat other people, how I think other people want to be treated. Um, so yeah, it's, it's always, fortunately for me, it's always, always present and, or, or it at least gives me something, it, it anchors me, it gives me something right to connect back to. Huh. I want to do something different. And you worked in the Ob Obama administration, right? I did. I worked in the Obama administration for four years at the Department of Education. So working on policy issues all the way from early learning through through post-secondary. How was that? Did you enjoy that work? Oh, I loved it. It was it was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it was crazy, but it was it was a wonderful time. It there I have I have worked with many, many great people in my career. Working at the Department of Education was one of them, but I'd also say working under Secretary Arnie Duncan and President Obama, where they, they kept you centered and connected, right, in the world of Washington, where it is about, uh, so much of it's about relationships and deals. I had someone like Arnie Duncan that was, you knew he was authentically about doing the right things for kids being considerate of the adults but doing the right things for kids and so sometimes you have to play the politics game but he tried to avoid it in the, to the extent that it um it got in the way of doing the right thing for kids so that was that was the joy of it that you know when you believe deeply in what you're doing and you have a chance to make a difference you just you honker all in so i can't say i want to go back to that <laughs> lifestyle of 24 7 and you know when i got there it was 18 months before the end of the first term and so you're kind of going we, can, we might only have 18 months let's let's go um so so that part was wonderful glad to not still be doing it hate <laughs> now hate the undoing that's happening right now but but it really was a very special time and and you just bond with people when you're working under that set of circumstances time pressure opportunity challenges etc hmm. do you this may be a crazy question do you, it, uh, you say the the undoing so obviously there you feel in the administration and i think it's a stated thing they want to undo everything the previous administration did over its eight years and and uh, and that's a heart pain for you i can tell it is a heart i mean yeah it's um you it, it's hard to that when you think about the amount of effort that you put in and you do believe you're doing the right thing and there was someone who was on the transition team that said that they that, you know, administration had sort of made a list of what we had accomplished in those eight years and 
I, I don't think it's a stretch to say that there has been almost a one-by-one one undoing of those things. And that's really hard, not just because you personally put in the work, but because the department, because government exists to protect its people and to help its people. So when you see things that are protecting, you know, um, private, for-profit colleges and they go out of business and students are still encumbered with the debt from this this um, this organization that they can't do anything with the credits that they got from it, right? Like mm-hmm. that's not in the interest of the students. It's not in the interest of, of the citizens of this country. And so that's the hard part is because, you know, you hear it, there's almost not a person, a parent that's not complaining about how much college costs or how much college will cost. And almost everyone I think can see that we all benefit when all of the people in our society get a good education. And so when you see those things that threaten that or just downright don't protect them, don't protect students with, um, you know, different sexual orientations and you sort of pull back the covers and say, nope, you're just out there on your own. Yeah, that that stuff is really hard to stomach and it's painful. And you leverage, the good news is I work in a place where we understand the tools that government have. And so we can leverage those tools as citizens and as an organization to push against, but it's, it's limited. And so sometimes there's only so much you can do and it feels like your hands are tied, which is, is, is not a good feeling to have in any context for any of us, right? To the, yeah. to the earlier, the victim, if you feel like your hands are tied, it's, it's really hard to move. So, so we've always had partisanship in parties and, you know, Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr shot at yeah. each other with guns, you know, but <laughs> I think it's it kind of a funny story is I, I just before I, we got together, I was I, I'm I'm getting a new driver's license. And and uh, so now in California, you uh, we have to get a real ID so we can travel. And and uh, um, and, and so then you have to re up your your uh, voting registration as a part of that. And so today, this morning, I, I, I I've been Republican my whole life uh, and I had to make that click on the, you know, and I'm thinking, am I a Republican anymore? <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I, I had to have that thought today. And I, you know, I kind of decided, well, I'm still going to stick in there and, and maybe I could help from the inside. <laughs> so I did click that Republican button. But I think and, and particularly as a pastor, I felt like, OK, this partisanship has always been here. It's kind of benign. Um, but I am really seeing that it's not benign. It, it really is injuring people now. We're, we're, we're injuring our country and we're injuring people. And uh, I, I don't know, do you see it that way? Do you see that, uh, the, that the partisanship of today, is it different than what we've had in the past? And is it injurious to culture and to people? I think it's absolutely injurious. And there is an absolute undermining and dismantling of our democracy. Forget forget party right in for you and i who connect to to faith and and we stay and hopefully our actions align with supporting people and victims and when you see things that are undermining that and and are injurious you know um it's hard to imagine like a brett kavanaugh situation 10 years ago that people would just sort of be put through who either weren't qualified or whose actions um, were unapologetic or whose action, you know, other people whose actions were reprehensible and, and we're still pushing party over what's often used now, right? Party over country. No, I do. I don't think it's ever been quite this pronounced and, um, and yeah, so it is a question of what do you do about it? Forget the, forget the label, but what do you, where you do about it? And what are you standing for? Hmm. What is it? I think King said you, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And so that's that's the time that I think we're, we're in, regardless of what you check on the box. What are you doing that right. says I'm standing for something that people are no longer, we're not going to allow anyone in this country to be to be victimized or or neglected or locked out in some instances we're being very intentional about locking people out which is just 
it's just absurd. Hmm. I, yeah, I think when when party becomes sort of a means to an end. Yes. Um, I have to support this candidate, this party, because of, and and honestly, I mean, I guess we can just address for evangelicals, it's 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 abortion or gay marriage or one of the the classic social issues, and. I can forgive all else as long as there's a purity on those issues. I, I think there's a real danger of, of missing the heart of Jesus in the midst of that, the heart of what God told us in the Bible to do. I think that's right. Yes, it, and that is what you see. It, it's, it's, really, it's hard for me to put my mind around because it is such a disconnect to be, yeah, to be so connected to a candidate on those two issues, which in the grand scheme of things are small issues relative to some of the other issues we're facing. I, I, I think I mentioned before, I just don't know how to square that. Yeah. <laughs> square that hole, I think, as the saying goes. But, but yes, it, and that's why I'm like, it, it, regardless of what box you check or you, are you thinking about the heart of Jesus and what our faith is about and recognizing we're not going to agree on everything, but who most represents the, the, what we think the way forward is, is, I think is how we should be thinking about it and not on an individual, especially a minority set of individual uh, issues basis. Hmm. It's interesting. How do we resolve that? I think is the, is the question we need to, to delve into. And I mean, I can, I can certainly respect a person's stance on on abortion. I, I I can I can respect it. I uh, okay. I kind of want to ask. Okay, what are you doing to help a mother who decides not to have an abortion take yeah. care of that kid? You know, and what's your stance? If you're pro life, what's your stance on life after birth? Um, yes. I think those are important questions. If you're in church, I'd say preach, Paul. <laughs> but that's right. I love it. Yeah, right? we were, we force people to bring kids into the world, and then we we do nothing. We do almost nothing to help that child be successful in life. It is it is the heart of hypocrisy. Well, we I I would say we resent any help for that that yeah. person and that child. If we we that's right. yes, we do, and so. Our pro-life stance ends at birth, apparently. So I, I would say change that, and I would have more respect for it. But um, I th- but I think to your point, that is the that is part of the dialogue. The my challenge comes from uh, there's another saying. Uh, I made up my mind. Don't confuse me with the facts. <laughs> <laughs> So I don't know what you do with those people when I, when I write, I literally, that saying stays in my head when I run across someone and I decide whether or not I should spend my time and energy engaging with them, understanding their perspective and sharing mine. I think if I'm, if I'm talking to a person who's close-minded, there's not a whole lot that I can do, but I do think it is, it is understanding that disconnect or it is helping to draw out that disconnect of, as an example, what we just talked about related to abortion and then what does what does support care and community look like for that child and that family after if if the person can somehow square that and in a way that feels aligned with our faith since that is the center for us okay maybe but usually those things are are in conflict one another but but I think it's helping to see the helping to understand the disconnect and how the person is reasoning and and helping to either understand their point and think about other ways to to get to the the end and different means to an end, mm-hmm. I think is is part of how we get there. But that's gosh, that's kind of one by one work, which I think is part of why we're in the situation we're in. I like to challenge people of faith with um, this idea of fighting this political battle to enforce this biblical concept. Where did Jesus demonstrate that? You know, where in Jesus' life did he show that he would endorse that? And and my book ultimately is my imagination of what Jesus would say all about this if he were here in the flesh today. And when when Jesus said things like, "If somebody takes your cloak, give them your tunic," when and understanding that the law was, you know, somebody could sue you over a debt and take your your outer garment. But it was illegal to take your inner garment because then you're you're putting their life at risk. Mm-hmm. And he's saying the real power is when an injustice comes against you, 
to go farther. Uh, if you're forced to go a mile, go two. I don't yes. see how that squares with the abortion battle that, that evangelicals are doing to say, yeah, I don't like the president's this, that, and the other thing, but because he's this, I will support him at all costs. I just don't see it demonstrated in Jesus' life at all. I don't think Jesus would endorse that in the slightest. In the least. <laughs> <laughs> like, what? Did you read at all? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting. In the least. Because it, it's coming, in some ways, I think you, you could say in the nonpartisan way, kind of how the Democrats supported Bill Clinton, maybe now they're kind of looking back and saying, eh, maybe we, we gave some fluidity to our morality at that point right. as well. And, and those things will come back to roost. But uh, again, I think if we start to hear a viewpoint That's that... Also the hypocrisy too, though, right? Yeah. Is we're able to look back in history and say, when this thing happened, you know, Republicans were all over it. It just that, you know, on, on that issue alone, yeah. it we don't want to have any part of this president out with him. And then you can look at the long list of things that the current president has done and there is silence that that certainly doesn't square with our faith, but it's also just a hypocritical from a historical actions perspective as well as part of it. But yeah, we'd be, we'd be lost to go back and, and figure out how supporting a one or two things aligns with, with, uh, with Jesus's principles and, yeah. and, and he was all about, um, you know, turning over tables and, and having a, and challenging the, the laws if they, if they were against loving my neighbor. Yeah. I was, I, I wrote a blog the other day about your, your, your president's sexual immorality is disqualifying. My president's sexual immorality is a mistake for which he's repented, and now it's okay. <laughs> right. right. So we all have our, our different viewpoints on that. And yes, I think it. I, I think it, you and I were talking before we started recording a little bit about this. Is you know who's the, who's the message for then? Um, how do we? So I, I, I see this concept of Jesus talking in, I, in the book of Isaiah in the Bible, it talks about uh, a people not having eyes to see or ears to hear, that, that their, their mindset is so powerful and they've, they've held on to it for so long that there's no longer an understanding of anything different than they've ever known. And then Jesus, in his time, which was a couple of thousand years later, he said, okay, these religious leaders, these are the guys that that was talking about. And... And I think in some ways today, for me, I'm, I'm starting to say, well, I, I think maybe we're just going to have to go to the millennials and say, okay, you guys are going to be taking over the world here in the next 10 years. Uh, you're going to be a really powerful force in the largest generation since the boomers. Let's just give you guys permission to be you and, and not think you have to be this divisive group of people. I, I mean, I don't know what you think about that, but it, do we just start to look at who has eyes to see and ears to hear and, and speak to them and, and say, I don't know too much of what we can do about the rest of this? Yeah, that is that is the question uh, as part of it. I it's so it's so refreshing to 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 see our youth who are not so encumbered by our, our own traditions, right? And it has to be this way. And in fact, I will say, it, well outside of a religious or political context, they push me to think about why we do things the way we do. You can remember a time, you know, women had to wear their skirts had to fall so long, or they couldn't show this, or they couldn't show their arms. They couldn't. They couldn't have bare legs. And I will say that the millennial generation has definitely challenged how we show up at work. They've challenged me to think about that. And some of it, I think, there is still a a professionalism standard to be held, but the inclusivity, the transparency. I didn't grow up with any of that when it was early on in my career, but that that is who they are. And so I'm trying to thread this needle with what I what I was taught and we talked about this earlier relative to your book, right? This dealing with the tension of what you were taught, but then thinking deeply about why that matters and should we continue to do it the same way or something different. So and and history tells us that they 
will and can be leaders for our current day. We've seen that so far with the Parkland shooting and the gun reform. We we saw that in the civil rights movement. It It is the youth who has will and can lead us. What I want us to be careful of is that we don't then abdicate our own responsibilities as Gen X and baby boomers that we're just going to stay stuck in our, our ways and <laughs> <laughs> just have to wait until we die off. Like I hope, we, <laughs> I hope that's not us, but that we, we who are enlightened can, can figure out ways to still connect with others and keep that open heart, right. That you still can change minds as part of it. But, uh, but yeah, history tells us that the youth shall lead. And so I think we need to give room for that while also there is the, what I was just speaking of, this intergenerational opportunity of how do we help them learn and connect to the past because history certainly has a role yeah. for the way forward as well. But I'm curious for you, we've, uh, we've talked in this topic of mindsets and you have very explicitly set out a goal around connecting with people who who think differently or there are lots of different ways to frame it, right? Lost their way, think differently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, all of the above, those don't have to be the same people, but I'm, I, and it's easier as connecting to our full conversation of it's easier to connect and stay with the people who quote unquote get it. And I'm curious what, aside from, and maybe that's the starting point, the bis- biblical principle of, of um, you know, finding and building disciples. What's what's led you to focus almost exclusively on that? It's an interesting question. Um, I I think it is some of there is sort of this immovable. I started to say mob. I don't want to use that word. There's there's a group of sort of immovable people um, that. Uh, you know, we have a high-speed rail project out here, and I had families leave my church because my wife supported high-speed rail. I mean, that, that's when I started saying, wow, we, we really are, are deep in this. We, we really are mixing our theology and our ideology and believing them to be the same thing. Mm-hmm. And, and in some ways just found, okay, I, I, can't, I can't move that dial enough to make a difference in the world in my lifetime. Um, and so I, I do see that, that Jesus sort of said to the ruling class and the, the religious leaders, I'm not going to spend a lot of time dealing with you. And, you know, you'd have somebody, Nicodemus, come to him in the middle of the night, didn't want to be seen with Jesus in public, but, but was intrigued by him. You know, those, there were those people out there. But, but Jesus went to the, the Samaritans and, and the good people of culture said, wow, he hangs out with the sinners and the wine drinkers and the tax collectors and all of the, the, and the Samaritans. And so I guess that's what I see. Is, so who are the Samaritans and the tax collectors and the wine bibbers? In our culture today, that's who Jesus would be hanging out with. And, you know, the first scene in the book that, as you've read, is is a real event that happened in Fresno, a defensive marriage rally, where there was a police tape cordoning off the LGBTQ plus community. They probably weren't called that at that time when that event happened. But I just remember seeing that event and and just having a sense of God challenging me with like, if I were there in the flesh, where would I be? Would I be up on the stage with the mayor and the evangelical religious leaders decrying gay marriage, or would I be over with those protesters? And and I think all evidence I see from Jesus is he would have been on the other side of the of the tape with the protesters and the good people saying, look at him hanging out with those people. And so I guess I want to be the one hanging out with those people. <laughs> right. Well, but I would say... So those are the, a little bit of the enlightened people, the, the, and I didn't think about this until now, is what he have now, so he, in your book, he navigates later, right? But mm-hmm. with some of the people who were, were in the crowd chanting, like would he turn around and engage in that crowd? Because that's the, the group of entrenched people. And I think he connects in the book. He connects with those some of those folks one by one, but there is 
that's that's part of it too. That is, I think, the the tax collector group as well, right? Mm. Because they're reinforcing the status quo, which is which is alienating and and hurtful to yeah. us. But yeah, he did that. He did that one by one, and so that's that's your work too. I think that is the work. And I think it's. You know, it's intriguing. You, you mentioned the Brett Kavanaugh thing, and I have this. Sometimes I imagine these crazy scenarios, and and, and Brett Kavanaugh claims to be a Christian man. I, I I will assume and accept that to be true. Um, and all of us who follow Christ have done things that we would be embarrassed about, and and that's part of what repentance is about. But I've thought about like how powerful in in you know, and Brett Kavanaugh then came into this hearing and was very combative and angry and attacking the senators that were questioning him. And I thought, how much of a testament to Christ would it have been if he said, "I don't want to be a divisive force in America. I would I would you know, so Jesus changed the world by dying for it. Uh, he He gave up all his rights. And what if Brett Kavanaugh had said, I don't want to be a divisive force in America. I, I've dreamed my whole life of being on the Supreme Court, but for the good of my country and a representation of my faith, I'm going to step aside. Surely there's another anti-Roe v. Wade judge out there that can feel that's not as controversial as me. I mean, how powerful a testimony to who Jesus is that would have been rather than, no, I'm going to fight to the death and, and show this anger and... Um, and I can under, yeah. <laughs> What's that? Powerful. I have chills imagining that. That yeah. is powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you saw this video of the young man in Dallas forgiving the police officer that killed his brother, you know, how powerful of the testimony is it if we lay down our rights rather than demanding them all the time? And, yes. uh, I, I think, I think we've, we've sort of missed the purpose of what Jesus did and was and. Yes, he wanted to overturn the status quo and all those things, but ultimately he said, I'm going to change this world in one way, and that's by, that's by dying for it. Coming as a servant and laying down my life and laying down all my rights and dying for it and letting God be the justice in all of that. Yes, yeah, so there's, there's often a conversation in, related to diversity and inclusion around power. Mm-hmm. The sentiment is, if you are really about diversity and inclusion, are you willing to give up some of your power so that others may have it? And that I think that speaks to your point of, of will we fight to keep all that we have? It's one thing if we can keep all that we have and others can still have, but in the instance where a trade-off is, is really the only solution, how much do you care about that thing that you are to your point, willing to give up your rights and your privileges so that others may have. And that is, I think that is a true test of faith. Hmm. So it goes back to what New America is doing to get people to to live empowered and, and in abundance thinking, which I love that term, rather than in the, sort of what I would call a poverty mentality of, yes. I got to fight for what I have today because there may not be enough for tomorrow. Yes, and we've been taught that, right? There's mm-hmm. there's hard, when you look at income distribution and how you have the 1% who's accumulated more and more wealth. And so, so I think the things like the income distribution or the wealth accumulation that is so clustered at the very, very tail end teaches us you've got this limited set and you need to fight for it. But how powerful would that be, again, if if those folks who are fighting for it got together and say, how do we reclaim some of what, what used to exist over here but is now clustered in the tail end? What could we do collectively? I think we could do a lot together. Hmm. We could do a lot more together than we are trying to do individually. And so that that's the power and the, the principles lived out. We'll finish with this as our time is about up here. Right? Do do you have hope in that? How what what do you see in the in the future of 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 America? Where where does sort of your your hope lie for us as a culture? Maybe I should ask. Mm, that's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I am certainly hopeful. I am hopeful for some of the reasons we've talked about. I am hopeful because there 
are millennials. They're, they're certainly our peers, but there are millennials as well who are willing to see and do things differently, who are willing to walk out of classrooms and hold rallies and protests and organize uh, others of us to do something. So that certainly gives me courage. Um, I still think there's a growing, even though there's a set of entrenched folks who want to keep things the way they are and keep the kind of stratification, I think the, there's been a call to action that where people were complacent before they are willing to do something different and not be like recognize that each one matters. And so they will they will show up in ways that, that they need to show up, whether mm. it's voting and uh, or protesting or responding to the government's calls for input or, you know, lots of ways that we can and can show our civic engagement that also encourages me as well. And then, you know, not to be not to be cheesy, but there are folks like you that are willing to give up their pulpit in the interest of of bringing people together and changing mindset and having a call to action. So the the more that I see those solutions and the more I see that activism, those those three things encourage me. Mm. I, and and the last thing I'll say, I'll add a fourth, which is history shows us that it takes this kind of disruption for change to come. Yeah. And so I think we are, at least in my lifetime, I've not seen it when I think about uh, the civil rights movement, for example, I, I miss that, but it took this pressure uh, against the status quo for change to come about. And I just, I think we're in another one of those moments. And so I, I'm encouraged that we will, we will push and we're, we're much stronger than we were five, 10, 20, 50 years ago. So. Uh, yeah. Okay. I love that. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. It's uh I've always asked myself if I were alive in the civil rights movement time, would I have been courageous enough to, to stand for right at that time? And, and, uh, and that's why I think, are, are we in a, such a seminal moment in history today that, yes. that in fact, the things around us are, are a mirror that, that God is holding up for us to decide who, who really am I? And uh, so that, that does give me hope that, that we maybe are in a time where real change is going to come because it, it has to get bad enough where people say, okay, I've got to change. So that's great. I love that. Yeah, good. Thank you for sharing that. Well, Tyra Mariani, what a joy from New America. Thank you for hanging out and having a conversation for a while. Thank you, sir. It was a true pleasure. Hope we can do it again. Hope so, too. <laughs>